0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Brad Stone and I'm a senior executive editor at Bloomberg News. I am just so pleased today to be back at the Commonwealth Club and to serve as moderator for this virtual conversation with my friend and colleague, Bloomberg editor Max Chafkin. We're here to discuss Max's fascinating new book, The Contrarian: Peter Thiel and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. The book has made many headlines since it's been released, and I'm really excited to speak today with Max about it. Uh, I've written two books about Amazon and Jeff Bezos, so I certainly know about the intrigue of covering a powerful and potentially vengeful technology executive. Uh, Similarly, understanding Peter Thiel, particularly his association with the Trump administration, is critical to understanding Silicon Valley, where it's been over the past decade, and where it's going now. An important housekeeping tip before we get started, if you have a question for Max, please place it in the YouTube chat box and questions will be forwarded to me throughout the program. So with uh, no further delay, Max, welcome to the program.
0: Uh, thanks for having me, uh, Brad. Thank you for doing this, and, and thank you to everybody for watching. I'm really excited to be doing this conversation. I wish we could be in person, you know, at the Commonwealth Club, that, but, uh, you know, that those That's swank
1: new offices uh, on the Embarcadero, indeed. Well, Max, I want to start with a number that I'm sure you're familiar with, 140 million. Uh, that, of course, was the, the judgment that the wrestler known as Hulk Hogan was awarded against Gawker Media, and as we all know, Peter Thiel. Uh, the the famous investor bankrolled that lawsuit. So I want to start off by asking, you know, probably the most sensitive question of all, which is why write a book about someone who we know is so hypersensitive to the way he is portrayed in the popular media?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and it's it's one that I have, uh, you know, thought a lot about. And and there are probably a bunch of different ways to answer that. And I mean, uh, the first I, I want to give you a kind of quick kind of why Peter Thiel, and then I'll 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 talk about Gawker and we I'm sure we can expand on the kind of Uh, yes and I'd like to go back to Gawker but 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 yeah I mean the reason why Peter Thiel is just because you know I think he is you know if not the you know, one of a very small handful of the most significant kind of players in Silicon Valley over the last couple of decades. Really, of his generation. You know, there are a handful of other people. You know, Jeff Bezos, as as you know, um, uh, Elon Musk is probably another one. But I think Teal's influence has been really interesting and 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 singular, both in terms of kind of the companies he's been involved in, and also kind of this ideological influence. And on top of that, of course, Teal has this really interesting, you know, kind of political story and a story about. Power. And of course, the Gawker uh, case, you know, is part of that, and it was part of, I think, the appeal of Peter Thiel to, to, to people in the Trump circle. He was the one who went after this liberal um, media outlet, and of course, you know, it hangs over. Um, you know this conversation, and and pretty much any time any journalist um, does a story about Peter Thiel, you know this is in the back of the journalist's mind. It's in the back of the editor's mind. It's in the back of maybe the reader's minds. And I think that makes it um, you know tough to 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 do journalism and to do good journalism. Um, but it also, of course, creates an opportunity because you know I don't think people had really um, dug into Thiel in in this kind of. Um, You know, in in, in such a comprehensive way, I thought, you know, when I was starting out, you know, it's kind of like, why hasn't anyone done this book? Well, one reason, of course, is because Peter Thiel, you know, put down a marker um, to intimidate people um, or or not and not just to intimidate people. But I I would argue that was one of the um, that was one of the reasons, you know, there are other reasons. And again, we can we can get into those. Um, People keep saying, you know, well, you know, aren't you afraid? Um, that, that Peter Thiel is going to go after you, this book it's, it's, you know, the book is balanced and I think there, there's stuff in here for people who really admire him. I think there are things about Peter Thiel that are, are absolutely worthy of admiration, but it also has, has critical stuff in it. And, um, and, and so people say, you know, aren't you afraid or, or something? And my response has been, you know, yeah, of course. But again, I don't know that there, I don't know there's any reason why another billionaire couldn't take Peter Thiel's playbook and just put it to work. And that's kind of what's so interesting about this Gawker case. It's not just a marker for Peter Thiel, but, but I would argue that any tech billionaire could follow this playbook. Peter Thiel has very, um, very conveniently, I guess, um, created a playbook and also kind of a permission structure um, that perhaps makes um, having a conversation like this a little bit harder, but also maybe more rewarding.
1: Right. Though no, I like how in the book, some of his uh, colleagues, current and former, who you spoke with, actually posed that question to you. Aren't you afraid that he'll come after you?
0: Yeah, yeah, and and of course it hangs over um, you know uh, meetings with potential sources, and and I and, and I think it gets it gets at um, both how uh, Peter Thiel is related to to the media, but also how people in this world relate to one another. I mean, one thing about. Um, this kind of uh, teal world the, the 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 teal verse I call it in the book and that you know is a term you hear thrown around um, is that you know loyalty is very important so so and 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 disloyalty in other words talking to a journalist or or making a public statement or, or whatever is is not rewarded and so so of course there are people who um you know that I'm speaking to who are, who are thinking about the gawker lawsuit and, and and the potential for litigation but I think the more immediate fear of course is just being frozen out of this incredible incredibly, um, you know, rich and varied influence network. You know, Teal has, you know, an enormous amount of money uh, willing to put at his disposal. But then there are, you know, dozens and dozens of other investors who, um, because of personal relationships or because they are they have, you know, some of Peter Teal's money as an LP in their firm, you know, who are also kind of part of this network. And it it, it definitely creates, um, you know, some some ideological and and uh, I guess, kind of, you know, conformity, uh, which is an odd thing to say about somebody who is a contrarian, but it is kind of how it works. We should probably
1: describe to some of the folks who are listening today and, and in the future who Peter Thiel is, right? I mean, they might be familiar with him because of his affiliation with the Trump administration. He's on the Facebook board, but they might not have a real understanding of how important and how influential he's been in the last 20 years of Silicon Valley history. So give us a thumbnail sketch.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really funny because if you had asked somebody in, say, 1998, who is Peter Thiel, um, or in 2008, who is Peter Thiel, or in, you know, 2018, you'd get different answers. And so the answer in 1998 would be he is a promising conservative activist, kind of the next Dinesh D'Souza or something like that. It's crazy as that sounds. Um, Peter Thiel, before, you know, getting involved in, in tech um, was best known as this guy who had started a kind of uh, a very conservative kind of bomb throwing newspaper at Stanford called the Stanford Review. He then went on to write a book called The Diversity Myth, which was kind of this, you know, young conservative, you know, taking the piss out of um, out of the liberal elites. And that was kind of who he was. And then he he starts PayPal and and PayPal um, was, you know, both very successful and also just because both, I think, because of the force of, of Teal's personality and because of some of the personalities from the other folks, these, you know, these big personalities, uh, Elon Musk, Reed Hoffman, um, Keith Raboy, you know, there's a long list of, of people who are really, you know, very in, in their own way, I guess, charismatic. Um, it had a huge influence. Teal then um, starts Palantir. Um, shortly after, uh, PayPal uh, goes public and is sold to eBay. Um, Palantir is basically a data mining company. Its main client is is was and, and is the the U.S. government. Um, but of course, there are lots of other corporate clients. And then Teal becomes this kind of wildly successful hedge fund manager, which is another kind of weird act that happened next. Where, where all of a sudden, you know, if you ask somebody in 2008 who's Peter Teal, they would have said, "Well, he's one of the world's most successful hedge fund managers." and and again and and, and so uh, while that's going on he's continuing to invest and of course the the final act i would say is teal as this Political actor as somebody who um, had this enormous amount of success in the technological world, kind of could be could be credited with, as I said, creating Silicon Valley. He is he's the leader, um, the Don of of what's known as the PayPal Mafia, which is this network of of early PayPal uh, folks. And then he sees another opportunity, an opportunity in the candidacy of Donald Trump, and manages. Uh, you know, kind of in a very short amount of time, to raise his profile uh, from being somebody who's you know was well known in the tech world and i think i 'm sure most of the people you know here kind of knew who he was, but he 's suddenly operating on on a new and and I would argue um maybe more interesting level and and that 's kind of where you know from my point of view when it really got interesting to think about a book because you know, Thiel had of course a huge influence on Silicon Valley, but then the idea that this tech guy, this venture capitalist, this futurist who happens to be an immigrant who happens um to be gay um would support, you know, Donald Trump who is running on a kind of reactionary platform. Trump is almost proud he doesn't, you know, use email, like let alone, you know, do the kinds of things that Peter Thiel wants. He's, you know, super anti-immigrant hardline anti-immigrant he's part of a political party that's that is in generally hostile to to the interests of gays and lesbians and so for all these reasons it just seems like a weird contrast and and i think that is what um both drew me to the story and also um you know kind of kind of kept me in it you know over the last few years uh, as I was...
1: well I, I hope we have time to to pick apart all these interesting and contradictory chapters of his life and career um when you i mean i of course you know when you start these kinds of unauthorized biographies there's always an awkward dance with the subject. And so I'm curious for you, for you what it was like, whether Peter was amenable. I mean, he's written a little bit about his, his own life and maybe some, some of his own kind of acolytes have written about him. Was he interested at all in a, a, a neutral third party um, writing a book about him?
0: Yeah, I mean, he, so so I approached this, and 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 I was pretty um, cognizant of the fact that you know, obviously, Teal has a contentious relationship with the media. You know, one of the things in my experience, having you know been a, a journalist and been doing kind of magazine writing for a long time, you know, the thing that kind of gets you in fights with your subjects is when you know, kind of the the proposal changes, right, where where you propose one thing and then eventually it turns into something else, which is you know, kind of an inevitable part of journalism, but of course, it leads to, to conflict. Um, I tried really hard to to describe the book the way I'm about to describe it to you to Peter Thiel and to everybody else. And and that was, you know, he's this person who is there are all these myths about him, right? There's the kind of um sort of lefty myth about Peter Thiel where he's this kind of evil, you know, vampiric data monger who's just like, you know, siphoning Facebook data, you know, and 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 doing God knows what with it and, and secretly, you know, supporting Donald Trump. Again, this is just the myth. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not endorsing this. Um, and then there is the myth of Peter Thiel as this superhero, as this Ayn Randian builder, as a, as an intellectual kind of one of the, not only just one of the great minds of his generation, but also one of the great doers of his gener- generation. And that's something that a lot of folks, you know, kind of in the tech world um, are really are buy into and are really excited about. And and my proposal w- was basically to treat Peter Thiel as a human and and to try to cut through both those myths because obviously there's truth to both of those things um and, and you know and we can we can untangle that um but i wanted to just write a neutral as you said a, a fair book and that's what i proposed um to teal and also to um you know the sources i talked to these are these are friends colleagues former classmates you know, really anyone who had who was involved in his companies or had had known him you know in, in his personal life and um and teal was i would say not enthusiastic about this i approached his his publicist his pr person and had a you know series of conversations um, that you know that led to a meeting an off the record meeting with peter teal in la uh there was a, a then a fact checking process at the end you know he was uh not not enthusiastic um uh bordering on cold to the idea but also didn't um, go out of his way to, to stop me. Um, you know, I didn't feel any, I, I, I think, I, I think people in his network were discouraged from, from speaking to me, but I did not get any, but there's a big difference between that discouraging people to talk to the journalist and, 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 you know, uh, uh, intimidation. And, and I never was threatened or even, you know, there were no veiled threats. There was nothing like that, you know, from Teal or anyone, um, who was, I think, speaking for him. And and I think that is, you know, to my mind as a journalist, that's to his credit. I mean, he didn't I, I really do think um it would be great if Peter Thiel were were able to or willing to to be more transparent and to talk to journalists more. I think the work that we do is really important. But I also think it's it's great, you know, I was able to do my job and 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 for somebody who has, you know, destroyed a media outlet, that's, you know, that's not saying much. I mean that's saying something. <laughs>
1: Well, one of the things that I loved about the book, Max, was how you shed light on the on the the history and the kind of political posture of Silicon Valley. I think there's a public impression that this is a a, a liberal, democratic stronghold uh, a, allied with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, and now Joe Biden. Um, you know, there's this idea that it's sprung out of the cult- counterculture. You actually write. You know, Silicon Valley in its purest form is the military industrial complex. Its founders weren't dropping LSD. They were proud squares with politics that were close to those of David Sarjordan, uh, the first Stanford president, then to the radicals of Stewart Brand's imagination. So, what did you learn about the Valley's political leanings that maybe doesn't jive exactly with the popular understanding?
0: yeah absolutely and and this is not to to sort of um, take away from all, you know there 's been a ton of amazing um, journalism and writing, including the the Stewart brand essay um, that you 're referencing about the valley and about the countercultural roots of the valley. Um, uh, you know, I think that's all true, and of course, there is this. There, there, there are kind of two threads to Silicon Valley. One is this countercultural thread, which I would argue has gotten more weight, probably, um, than the other thread, which is equally, if not more, important. But, but you know, I think we all, and and me, and and many other um, journalists, and 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 others who have just you know been around this world, um, we sort of because of Steve Jobs and because of the success of. Apple in particular, but also Google and some of these other companies, you know, it's kind of easy to draw a line um, to, again, to, to the counterculture straight to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, of course, a, a hippie who dropped acid and who was a fruititarian. Um, and it, you start to think, oh, OK, so like that's what Silicon Valley is. It's just kind of the culmination of of that. But of course, there's a second thread, which is um, you, you said it: the military industrial complex and not just that, but this kind of really. um like libertarianism on steroids where, where it's not just, you know, uh, the government should be out of our lives, but, but it would be better if we kind of got rid of the government as a whole. And I, and it's, and you can kind of see like that, that thread is related to the, to the countercultural cultural threat. It's not totally distinct. And I think it's, you know, it's fair to, 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 to ask if, you know, maybe that maybe they're all one in the same or something, but I do think that Teal was tapping into something and has tapped into something really successfully, um, which is both the kind of, um, conservative uh ultra libertarian roots of this of silicon valley and also silicon valley as this um hotbed of military technology and of course peter Thiel, most of his net worth um is coming right now anyway i mean of course th- this can change and uh, you know uh stripe is probably going to continue to grow and who knows but but right now you know most of his net worth is is coming from uh palantir and and palantir is you know a lot like these the old school Silicon Valley companies, in fact, and, and Palantir has kind of embraced that identity, even, even as they've um, left Silicon Valley. They're technically, you know, based in, in, in Denver now.
1: Uh, okay, well, I'd, I'd like to dive into the book now, but I want to invite uh, viewers and listeners to, to ask Max questions in the YouTube comments, and we'll pose them later in the conversation. Um, Max, I wanna I wanna talk about young Peter. Uh you talk you talk to a former classmate calling him a strange, strange boy. And certainly there's a sense in your biography of, of Peter Teal's early years that he had the sense that the world was against him. You know, what what happened early in, in Peter's life that maybe, you know, gave gave him that sense?
0: Yeah, so you know, Teal was and I guess to some extent still is, even though he's a billionaire, kind of an outsider. Um he uh his you know child of immigrants his his parents were are uh you know a german born he's born in germany evangelical christians um family moved around a whole lot i mean they bounced from cleveland uh where his dad was enrolled at case western university uh to um to apartheid south africa where his dad worked uh you know kind of in mining back to california and i think um a couple of things i mean one is the family was conservative. Teal is conservative. Um, you know the California that Peter Teal inhabited in the you know seventies and eighties, not as left as as, as today's California. Um, uh, but I do think that there may have been. Uh, you know, culture shock, right? A a sense that like, uh, you know, when he, especially when he gets to Stanford um, and had spent some of his childhood in apartheid South Africa, you know, work, uh, you know, where his father's working in uranium mining, which is definitely a a field that is pretty tied, was pretty tied in closely with the, you know, apartheid regime um, that, you know, it's kind of hitting you in the face, this sudden feeling that you are on the outside looking in. I also think, you know, background aside, Teal is... um, incredibly smart brilliant um he is introverted um and you know kind of kind of reserved and i think like that that those qualities of course um tend to make for difficult childhoods you know but it's you you become a target for bullies and 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 teal of course was uh was bullied yeah, and you i think one
1: of his classmates saying that, that what we were doing was probably bullying why why, yeah. why was he targeted
0: I mean I think he was targeted for the usual reason that 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 nerds are targeted I mean I, but but I do think he even then right was clearly had this chip on his shoulder this you know, I mean, I think people. I think, I think one of the reasons that people sort of went after him is they could see it was working, right? He was getting mad, and and once you, when you're getting mad, it you know it, it feeds onto itself. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that classmate, um, you know, who had been one of his tormentors, you know, I genuinely felt uh, felt bad about it, and um, and, you know, and talked about that. I, I I think the other thing about him, you know, he was just exceedingly ambitious. Um, somebody who really wanted really saw himself as you know correctly uh uh, destined for for greatness um uh you know he's very good at chess he was you know sort of nationally ranked chess player he had this sense of himself this incredible um talking to people in college this incredible self-possession which is kind of an interesting thing for somebody who was bullied and you know who didn't have a lot of like you know really close friends and um you know that 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 combination of ambition and self-possession and a chip on your shoulder i mean that can obviously be really powerful and I think it's not that. So given all that, you know, when you see him sort of become this world beater first, you know, in college when he he starts this um, newspaper that that not only you know makes waves in Stanford and, and causes lots of trouble you know, you know, in Palo Alto, but also gets the attention of Bill Bennett, the secretary of education. I mean, Peter Thiel is like being quoted and, you know, in, in media as an undergraduate, Bill Bennett is talking about this event that Peter Thiel organized, you know, in 1987 on 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 like the mcneil Lehrer News Hour. It's like a really, he really just um, managed to kind of vault himself into a, into this higher echelon immediately in this weird, you know, political venue. And so I think that, you know, in some ways, like all of that difficulty in childhood um, probably set him up for the. The success that followed, right? No,
1: I'm I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the Stanford years and his conversion into really a right-wing provocateur, right? That is where it starts. Where he, they are just he he and and his and his colleagues at the Stanford conservative newspaper are really just throwing bombs. They're looking to incite the, the student body.
0: Yeah, and you know, you go back and read this stuff, and it's 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 very far out there, and um, you know, there are a bunch of examples in the book, and and in general, just to summarize, the, the general um uh the general vector of it is sort of like. These liberals and their and their mores are ruining Stanford as it used to be. And they're, they're too nice to um, the concerns of black people, they're too accommodating of the concerns of women, they're too accommodating of the concerns of gays. And 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 those things, that line of questioning, right, it's like one half step away from saying something racist, sexist, or homophobic. And at times, you know, the Stanford Review would go there and, and it would create these huge controversies, and then you get the controversy. On top of the controversy, right? Where, where the Stanford Review gets to say, oh, look, we're getting persecuted, you know. And um, and I think anyone who has kind of who has paid attention to kind of politics today, and, and particularly like right-wing politics, the alt-right, um, will recognize some of this stuff. I mean, this is kind of the prototype of, you know, what we think of as, as trolling, of uh, the, the kind of behavior that we saw on the web, um, you know, and, and elsewhere that 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 actually created a lot of energy um for Donald Trump. And and of course, Peter Thiel you know was knows a lot of those people and 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 was you know was at least you know t- talking to them and 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 somewhat supportive um the other thing i it's probably worth saying is You know, back in the '80s, there was this. Teal was not in a vacuum, right? There were other on other college campuses at Dart. There's a Dartmouth Review, which is Dinesh D'Souza's paper. There was a Cornell Review, which was Ann Coulter's paper. This was like a tried and true path to you know quickly getting credibility, you know, on the right. And Teal just very beautifully um, saw the opportunity and latched onto it, and then that network that he created at Stanford, the Stanford Review, really be, is the beginning, is the seed of the PayPal network. And, and, and that, that's something that's underappreciated, but I think it actually gave PayPal a lot of its, its um, sort of cohesiveness and maybe its power uh, once it got going.
1: Well, that's a great segue because I do want to fast forward through Peter's career and get to the PayPal years. I mean, there's really so much to cover that we kind of do need to, to hit fast forward. So, um, you know, Peter has a, a, a sort of short-lived legal career, moves to Silicon Valley, founds PayPal. But the story, Max, I want you to tell is his conflict with Elon Musk, because what, what always fascinated me is that Peter is like the one guy to stab Elon in the back and survive. And and today, the Founders Fund, Peter's uh, firm, inv- has invested in SpaceX. They seem to continue to have a relationship. But tell the story of Teal, of, of a young Peter Teal, really outmaneuvering Elon Musk at PayPal.
0: Yeah, absolutely right. And I think that that your take on that it really it really speaks both to you know uh, Teal's power because as we know and 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 persuasiveness and gamesmanship because as we know Elon Musk is not somebody who suffers fools lightly and and normally when you when you screw him you know there's there's hell to pay. Um. So so it it's easy to forget you know in retrospect you you know we remember PayPal but we don't we we sort of forget that there were a, there were all these other payments companies right. This wasn't the the idea of starting a payments company wasn't like some brilliant idea, there were like a dozen of these, and they all had funny names. And and of course, there was there were so many, in fact, that you know there were two payments companies in the same building. Elon Musk's pay, uh, uh, Peter Thiel's PayPal and Elon Musk's X.com actually shared an office for a short period of time. Um, you know, the two companies merged, and it was a merger of equals. But but Elon being um, both more experienced. Better funded, more famous, um, and also a sole founder was able to basically t- get control of the of the venture. He became CEO. Peter is marginalized, kind of more or less forced out. He quits um, uh, but crucially, this kind of network of Peter Thiel friends these these ex Stanford review guys, plus Max Levchin. Uh, this brilliant coder, who is actually the guy who you know kind of did the the actual engineering behind the original PayPal, and and some of Max's friends, they were still loyal to Peter, and there is this coup uh, where where they show up at, at the office of Mike Moritz and present an ultimatum, and the ultimatum is you know either you fire Elon um, or we're all walking out, and which is another way of saying either you fire Elon or the company's going to go under because remember this is like the the dot com uh, bubble is crashing around them, things are very hectic and crucially probably the only reason this was able to happen is because elon musk was not in the country i mean they waited for elon to be you know overseas he was in australia i think uh, you know kind of on a combination business trip honeymoon he was going to try to raise some money and then you know take in the summer olympics um he comes back of course and uh and he's he's been done in by uh by his by his co-founder and and the amazing thing is so elon musk you know predictably if you know him he raged and um but then he um he relented and he relented because because he saw the same thing that Mike Moritz saw, which was there's one way forward, and this is the way. And, and, and I think, you know, the fact that he and and Peter found a way to kind of work together is both a testament to, I suppose, the power of forgiveness and, and things like that, but it's also a testament to the extent to which Elon, I think, saw and, and saw correctly that Peter was was a was a force to be reckoned with, and he's better off having Peter as a friend than has an enemy. And and I think it kind of worked the same way with both of them. they they have this kind of uneasy alliance, and and it and it and then it pays off in in 2008 um, when SpaceX is really desperate for funding, and there's Founders Fund, Peter Thiel's firm, ready to make an investment that effectively saved uh, SpaceX and 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 maybe saved Elon Musk's you know solvency because if. SpaceX fails there. I don't know. I mean the whole the whole um the whole Musk kind of world at that point was very, very tenuous. You know, you're not, I'm sure the companies would have turned into something, but it's hard to imagine Tesla would be what it is today, and certainly not SpaceX, had, had that not had that deal not been um you,
1: you have an amazing and, and combustible quote in the book that I just have to read. Teal thinks that Elon Musk is a poser and a fraud, while Musk considers Teal a, soci- a sociopath. I mean, that's just amazing, and yet it does seem like they have. And I guess that's a that's a third party quote, right? From yeah, yeah, who knows yeah, them yeah. Both. That's yeah, not and Max talking, but it's amazing that they've had a productive relationship. If that's if that's their posture towards.
0: They are, you know, they are just very different people. I mean, and and anyone who's who's talked to them knows this. I mean, you know, they are. You know, Musk is this kind of. Uh, effusive he's funny he's you know he's he wears his heart on his sleeve and he also has this tendency to just sort of double triple quadruple you know just just keep betting on the same thing. Teal, of course, is cerebral. He's reserved. And, and I think, and, and you know, d- d- funny, but funny in a different way. Um, and, and, of course, is all about hedging his bets and, and, and finding angles and, and kind of gamesmanship. And, and Musk is just more like in your face. So it's like two different styles. But, of course, they found a way to work together. And they've had, you know, over 20 years, this kind of uh, awkward but mutually beneficial relationship.
1: So uh, PayPal, of course, is sold to eBay. Peter starts a hedge fund called Clarium Capital. And we're going to fast forward in another few years. And Clarium really hits a pothole during the Great Recession. And that is what fuels his lawsuit against Gawker. I had never made that connection until I read your book. So where did he go wrong with Clarium? And why did he take it out on this gossip site that was clearly needling him at the time for his investment record and for his his uh, his lifestyle?
0: Well, I think it's important to say, you know, just, just, just had a baseline that there was there was this Gawker post that was kind of the inciting action look let 's remove all the business for a second and, and just talk about the fact that you know in two thousand and eight Gawker media, which had been doing actually a lot of really important journalism uh, you know really scrutinizing the tech industry in in ways that I think were positive, was also just doing kind of the most like out there gonzo kind of tawdry stuff you could imagine, including this post in two thousand and eight said peter Thiel's totally gay people at the time. You know, Teal was out to his friends. I mean, there are people at his um, at the hedge fund where that he ran. They knew he was gay. His boyfriend came to the Christmas party. It wasn't like a big secret, but it wasn't public information. It was kind of an open secret. And I think that that you know that was the beginning of it. And that if that doesn't happen, there's no campaign against Gawker Media. I mean, for all the other stuff Gawker did. Now it's important to say that this. Um, you know, Teal felt violated by this. And I think, I think we can say with with some reason. I mean, you know, I think, I think it's, a, it's a clearly um, uh, violated his um, privacy and, and and certainly as he saw it, his sense of self. And it wasn't, you know, the, the combination of the post and then asking questions about why exactly and you know, talked about. It. I think it was just a part of his life that he wasn't, you know, ready to talk about.
1: By the way, and if you don't mind me interjecting, it was also uh, Gawker's founder, Nick Denton, leaving a kind of incendiary comment in that original post that he took offensive.
0: Right. That's, yeah, that's what I was kind of getting at. It was like sort of turning the, the, the Denton left this comment kind of turning this post, another twist of the knife or whatever, where he's saying, well, and and we really got to ask why he's not doing this. You know, is it something, you know, what's going on with, you know, and it's sort of an implication that, you know, there's some kind of an an attempt to sort of psychologize or whatever. Um, Now. Okay. So that sends, Peter Thiel into puts him in a bad place, and people, all the people around, and people I talk to, by his own account as well, you know, he is he is off his game. And at the same time, as he said, Clarium, his hedge fund, which at the at the time had been just on a tear, so so successful, you know, Wall Street Journal, Barrons, Bloomberg, they're all writing about how awesome this company is, how you know, billions of dollars under management. Um, Thiel calls the crash of the economy right, but trades himself into an enormous hole. And, you know, and while this is happening, Gawker is writing this drumbeat of stories about what an idiot he is. And everyone thinks Peter Thiel's a genius. Ha ha. He's not a genius. Right. And I think that journalism that they were doing was actually, that was like legitimate journalism. I mean, they were, they were pointing out things that were, were, were there and, and, and perhaps needed to be pointed out, but that combined with this post, um, you know, I think was, was, was too much. And, and then Gawker on top of that is also going after uh, all of Peter Thiel's friends. They're writing stories about Sean Parker or they're, you know, so, so I think, I think it's like a combination of, of, of real scrutiny, but then also the, the, you know, this violation of his privacy and Thiel tried, as I talk about in the book, there are all sorts of things that happened Um, You know, in the years before the Hogan lawsuit, Teal, you know, wanted to get Gawker or wanted to do something to make his to make this better and tried all sorts of things from sort of sweet talking, attempting to kind of, um, you know, maybe court uh, Gawker to hiring private eyes. There was a there was a whole series of things. And then he finds finally lands on this kind of both devious and brilliant strategy, which is there's this litigation going on. Hulk Hogan, professional wrestler, was wronged by Gawker in a much clearer way than Peter Thiel was wronged by Gawker, right? Hulk Hogan, there was a sex tape, and it was it was a private tape. It hadn't been recorded with his consent. It's basically revenge porn. And Gawker posted it, and this Winds its way, thanks to Peter Thiel, in part, winds its way to a jury trial and this enormous verdict—this, you know, verdict of more than a hundred million dollars—that sends uh, that sends Gawker uh, to bankruptcy, uh, uh, puts a bunch of journalists out of work, and and it sends Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker, into personal bankruptcy.
1: Amazing. Well, we're getting uh, some good questions in, which we'll get to about uh, Thiel's uh, support for for uh, Donald Trump and his administration. But uh, first, I think we should talk about one of the most important relationships in the book, and that's between Mark Zuckerberg and, and Peter Thiel. Uh, and, and, that, and his investment in Facebook is really foundational to Facebook's founding, uh, the way it's operated now. And I want to unpack one of, the, one of my favorite lines in the book. Max, you write, the Facebook founder, like almost every successful techie of his generation, isn't a liberal or a conservative. He's a Tealist. The rules do not apply. So first let me ask you what what is a tealist what is tealism.
0: So uh I'll tell you what I think it is. I mean, you know, it's kind of made up, but I but I do think it it's probably a helpful framework to um to understand uh both the influence of Peter Thiel and maybe it says something about kind of um some of the ideologies that are that are animating some of the largest companies. So teal obviously has has all these ideological points of views. hopefully we can we can talk about them. we can talk about the conservatism, we can talk about t- Donald Trump. But I think probably a more important part of, of teal's worldview is just this idea that technology at, you know and and technology companies in particular are of paramount importance. We need to make the future happen, we need to make it faster, um, and we need to make it better a lot faster. and the way to do that is through These technology companies, and and he has very specific ideas about how these companies should be run. Most of which are 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 laid out in zero to one. I think it's really worth anybody who's you know you should read my book, and I think it has interesting stuff. I think if you're really interested in digging into this topic, you know Teal's book is also worth reading because he lays a lot of this out. Um, The um the basic a uh, thing that zero to one argues is that tech companies should try to achieve monopoly profits. They should get really big, so big that they dominate markets. And you see this idea in a lot of the things that PayPal did in its early years, kind of this they PayPal did kind of very aggressive growth, spent huge amounts of money, was very pushy. And then and and then the second part of this is is sort of how you get there and and you get there by essentially breaking the rules by you know disrupting the status quo and times that's going to mean you know potentially um uh, running afoul of regulators, that, that's kind of okay in this worldview. And it, it's, it's more than okay, actually. It's almost encouraged because the view is that you know the existing rules are bad and we need to fix them. We need to make new rules. And the way to do that is through um, this kind of hyper growth where these founders, people like Mark Zuckerberg, are a privileged class and they are able to, and, and expected in fact, to kind of uh, do what they want to do so they can make the world a better place. And that is, I think... Um, Number one, I can see why that's a very helpful uh, business philosophy, right um, uh, especially when you're talking about an industry uh, the industry as it existed in say two thousand four or two thousand five when teal is getting involved with facebook as the as the first outside investor as you know the longest serving board member to Zuckerberg as a you know long time kind of mentor. Um, Facebook was this kind of piddling company run by a you know Harvard tech bro who really there had no business being there, no business running a, a a giant company by any kind of normal standard. He was basically a troublemaker who had who had run afoul of Larry Summers. I mean, we've all seen The Social Network, and and you know he, there, he didn't have a lot going for him. But of course, Peter Thiel saw that Zuckerberg was something special, and not just that, but that Facebook was something special, and he helped set this. Um, set this young man up so that he would not only, you know, be able to raise capital from, from, Investors and grow the company in the way that he did, but also giving Zuckerberg this kind of absolute power where, where Zuckerberg even to this day is basically facebook's um, dictator and again that's so that's a, a way of uh, that's a kind of an expression of teal's ideology but I think it also kind of led to to facebook's success and um and as I said I think it was helpful especially in the early years although now I think once you get to you know a couple trillion dollars in market cap uh, several billion users, you have to start asking yourself whether the rules that the willingness to kind of ignore the rules and kind of stick it in the eye of institutions or whatever um, has gone too far.
1: Yeah. I did keep wondering, reading the book and of course, reading, uh, uh, you know, he- current headlines why Peter Thiel is still on the Facebook board of directors. He does seem to bring so much trouble. He invested in Clearview AI, the startup that has basically scraped photos off of Facebook. He purportedly leaked some emails from another board member Uh, And then you have this remarkable account of this 2019 meeting with Peter and Mark Zuckerberg and Jared Kushner and Donald Trump, which uh, I, I like one publication said you provided behind the spray tan details. And at the dinner, Zuckerberg and Facebook reportedly agree to take a hands off approach to news from conservative media sites. Now, Zuck and Facebook have denied that. So tell us a little bit of what's going on there and to belabor the question, how much water Peter Teal still carries at Facebook.
0: All right. Yeah. So much to unpack there. So, um, you know, during the Trump administration, um, Thiel played this really important role, right. Where, um, Facebook was, I I'd say unfairly to some extent, under attack from conservatives, um, for, you know, quote unquote, discriminating against conservative views. Now, um, I'm just going to summarize a view. Uh, I'm not endorsing it, but the idea was basically: this is a left-wing California company, and um, and they, even though they were taking a relatively hands-off approach, you know, they were discriminating against conservative voices, and and that meme, while I think, didn't have a lot of basis in fact. I mean, there was a Facebook attempted to like promote you know like legitimate media outlets at, at, for for a couple of months in 2016 and and in doing so you know was promoting the new york times which i guess if you twist if you squint is you know is promoting liberals or something but i mean I, again not, not a lot of basis of fact but this really took off and it took off not just among the right but but in particular at the white house where donald trump sort of figured out that you know Uh, you know, making fun of Facebook is kind of good for business. And, um, and so he's just hammering this company nonstop and Teal ends up playing this kind of mediator role. On one hand, he's there to kind of help Mark Zuckerberg absorb the flack. So Mark Zuckerberg can say, listen, you know President Trump. Um, I have this board member Peter Thiel. He's not just like a. He's not a Rhino. He's a. He's a Republican, but he's a real Republican. He's a Donald Trump Republican. He's so crazy. Steve Bannon thinks he's crazy. You know, Trump Thiel was like a, a died-in-the-wool Trumpist and is, and that really I think helped Zuckerberg. Um, you know, on a sort of PR level with with conservatives. And then the other thing Thiel was able to do is sort of push Zuckerberg a little bit towards Donald Trump, and that's kind of what we see. Um, in this meeting in 2019 and in the events around that meeting. So, you know, ahead of that meeting, Zuckerberg had been taking a lot of flack um, from uh, prominent liberals, from Elizabeth Warren in particular, over these campaign ads that Trump and Trump's allies had been running, where they were like sort of making up stuff about Hunter Biden or, you know, really, really torturing the truth about Hunter Biden, Um, distributing videos of Nancy Pelosi, where she, you know, whatever, where they're manipulating them to make it look like she had some kind of neurological condition. Um, and so Warren and others are, are out there saying, you know, we got to stop this. Facebook is bad. And, um, and Zuckerberg gives this speech, um, where he defends the company's point of view and, and the speech says, you know, basically Facebook is about free expression. We need to allow everything. This is, you know, very much the, the Peter Thiel sort of view of the company. And, and frankly, the Peter Thiel view, uh, to some extent of, of, speech on the internet. And then they have this meeting, um, That is secret that we don't we don't know anything about, really, except that uh, Donald Trump uh, and and Melania are there. Jared Kushner and Ivanka are there. uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife are there. And Peter Thiel and his husband are there. And and after that meeting, Teal says uh, to to a friend, uh, which is what I report in the book, that there was some kind of understanding reached. And 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 what was the nature of that understanding? Well, we, we don't know for sure, and Facebook of course has denied it. But what we do know is, in the immediate aftermath of that meeting, um, Facebook creates this list of kind of you know uh, media outlets that it says are respected or whatever are, are going to be are going to be part of its 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 initiative to promote you know kind of real news. On that list is Breitbart. You know, Daily Caller shows up on its on its. List of fact checking partners. And of course, there's a ton of reporting from Bloomberg, some of my colleagues at Bloomberg, and also BuzzFeed, that suggest that over the next few months, you know, Facebook um, made a real effort to give leeway to to some of these conservative groups, in particular, you know, Ben Shapiro, um, and also we know that that Facebook was a little bit slower to kind of respond to some of Trump's more incendiary posts. So when when Trump says the looters got get shot um, thing, which is a callback to you know George Wallace. Um, uh, Twitter um is much quicker to act than Facebook Facebook, of course, eventually you know kind of comes around and bans trump and and kind of uh, after the January sixth insurrection but I think it's 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 clear that um facebook you know kind of was 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 both worried about this conservative uh backlash and was doing whatever it could to cater to to a sitting u s president which is not um i don 't think that's hugely surprising, especially given who donald trump is um but it does it does tell you something um now, why is Teal on the board? That now that is like a real question. That's a question that I have spent some time. Um, and if, as you to point answer. out, he sold his stake after the IPO, so he's no longer
1: a, a large shareholder.
0: He has done so many things over the years to send Mark Zuckerberg through the roof. And as I tell a story in the book um, that was related to me, you know, from somebody who who set this up, but Teal. Um, Teal gave a speech at Facebook after the IPO the, the the company is really struggling. It's, it's like, you know, they're getting hammered in the press. Employees are seeing the stock go down. Everyone's like really, you know, just super depressed. So they bring in Peter Thiel. Great. The great man, the great investor himself, the longest serving, you know, independent director. Um, he's, he's a, he's a published famous author or not, not yet, but uh, he's teaching the Stanford class. He's, he's got big deal. And he's going to go in and pump everybody up. And instead of pumping everybody up, he gives a speech where he says, you know, we were promised uh, flying cars, and instead we got Facebook, which is um, a kind of a twist on his usual talk. Which is, we were promised, you know, flying cars, and say we got 140 characters. That one normally makes fun of Twitter. That probably would have been just fine with Mark Zuckerberg, but instead he kind of just just has a dig dig for facebook and 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 there and then over the years there are a lot lots of these other uh stories where teal is you know very supportive of zuckerberg in certain ways but in other ways he seems to be kind of needling him both encouraging kind of conservative opposition maybe even fanning the flames a little bit of that opposition um you know james o'keefe the kind of right-wing provocateur has been putting out these um these videos about all the terrible things that uh, Facebook does, and you know, was personally insulting Mark Zuckerberg at every turn. You know, he is another guy who's gotten money from Peter Thiel, and 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 there's a like a, like a long list of, of 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 this kind of thing. Now, I've heard two explanations for why uh, Facebook has why Zuckerberg, you know, continues to have Thiel on the board, and and I think they both make sense, and are, are both both probably contain uh, a good bit of truth. So one is that. Zuckerberg respects Teal because he tells it like it is, right? Teal, Peter Teal is the only person who um, who has the guts to come in and say, "Hey, Facebook, you kind of suck right now." You know, that's and that's something that Zuckerberg, as as somebody who has you know kind of absolute power at this company, um, who's surrounded, of course, by a lot. You know, when you have that kind of power, you know, there's a tendency for everyone to kind of try to flatter you, and and I think he respects Teal for that. I think he respects Teal. Because of Teal's, you know, ideological stance, he he respects that Teal kind of says what he believes. Um, And then there's a second thing, which is that I think strategically, it would be very hard for Mark Zuckerberg to fire Peter Teal. And maybe it's a little easier now that uh, now that Joe Biden is president and the Democrats control um, uh, both houses of Congress. But but remember, there is very you know, Facebook if it loses Teal is going to get hit all over again, by the same conservatives who have been complaining about, you know, free speech, you know, Tucker Carlson, um, is gonna, is gonna be all over this. If Peter Thiel gets canceled, that will be an enormous news story. And I think it, Zuckerberg, um, has realized uh, probably has realized correctly that that to 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 push teal out would be you know just just create probably more problems than it solves and and right now you know teal yes he's he's a critic but 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 maybe he can Zuckerberg of, of course is very wealthy and 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 Facebook is dominant and so Zuckerberg can afford that and I think he probably can afford it more than he can afford you know picking up a fight with the entire um, you know conservative media apparatus which is what would happen if Peter teal got fired.
1: Interesting. Well, the the subtitle of the book talks about Silicon Valley's pursuit of power. And and certainly one thread of the book is Teal's courtship of Donald Trump. Uh, he, he, He remarkably bets right on this contrarian bet on Donald Trump in 2016. And he gets a seat at the table. And what was so interesting is how he then seemingly squandered it, right? You talk about Teal as part of the transition in 2016 and spent all his political capital nominating people who were just kind of comically unpalatable, right? And so, and he really doesn't place anyone. So he doesn't have a lot of, seemingly doesn't have a lot of success uh, placing people in his orbit into government positions, but he still capitalizes uh, on, that, on that political power. So how, how were the Trump years good for Peter Thiel?
0: So, I mean, I think it's really tempting to look at, you know, Teal's kind of, as you said, political stumbles. And and they are, there is almost a comic quality to them where, where like, uh, you know, as I, as I report in the book, and this was in the Bloomberg excerpt, you know, Steve Bannon, who's like you know, pretty out there as far as conservatives is saying, you know, you wouldn't believe the crazy stuff that Peter Thiel is, is trying, you know? And it's like when, when Steve Bannon is calling you, uh, is calling you too, too out there, like, you know, that is, that is a problem probably. Um, that said, um, I don't think I would say that the, that, that Thiel failed in any way. And in fact, I think in some ways he sort of played this brilliantly. So, um, First of all, he did get a few people into positions of power. Right there was it's about a dozen people, including um, you know uh, the, the the head of the uh, the USCTO, who then uh, took a pretty high high powered um, uh, defense department research and development position. He had a, a very close confidant on the National Security Council, and he had you know a, a bunch of um, sort of lower to mid level figures who had worked at Palantir, worked around Palantir, who are in government, and. Okay, so that's that's not great when, when you were trying to go for an FDA commissioner or something like that, but I do think that it, it sort of all worked out because, you know, the thing that Teal got, besides getting these people um you know, into the White House, the handful of people was he got access, and he got access for himself and for um, many of the people who are in his inner circle. So, um, you know, early on December 2016, people probably remember the pictures where where Peter Thiel and Donald Trump are there, and it's like a who's who of Silicon Valley. You got Tim Cook, um, you've got you know, you've got Larry Page, you've got Jeff Bezos, you've got um, uh, Microsoft CEO, you got everybody basically there. Mark Zuckerberg's not there. There, but Cheryl's there, um, and also there is Alex Carp, the CEO of Palantir. Now, Palantir at the time was a really small company compared to those compared to those giants. Those are the some of the biggest companies in the entire world. Palantir at the time is a private company with a market capitalization of maybe you know twenty billion dollars. There are much much larger defense contractors. If you wanted to bring in the heavy the defense heavyweights, right? That wasn't them. But but this this company, of course, does have very close ties to Teal. Teal owned twenty percent of the company at the time, and You know, did that is that what helped propel Palantir to um, to the amazing run of government contracts that it saw in the years that followed? I don't know. And Palantir will will say that it had you know this access had nothing to do with their success. Their success was totally about the software, not about the politics. But of course. I mean, when you're talking about these, you know, defense contracts worth hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, politics is always going to come into play. And I I just can't imagine that um, that those relationships didn't hurt. And the upshot is that Teal, at the end of the Trump presidency, you know, Palantir has grown in size enormously. It's gone from being really this kind of sideshow thing to being a really a major. So it's about
1: a 50 billion dollar market cap at the end of the Trump administration. So 20 billion private valuation of 50 billion public company market cap.
0: Yeah, and just tons of momentum too. Not just the, not just the market. Care. There's a reason investors are valuing it that way because it's just been on on fire. I mean, they they have an eight hundred billion dollar eight hundred million dollar army contract, a four hundred million dollar Defense Department contract. All these during COVID, there are all these um, uh, HHS contracts that that they were able to get, um, and 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 so that has you know increased Teal's net worth dramatically. As I said, he was he is the the biggest shareholder um, in the company. He at the before the IPO he owned about twenty percent. Um, so that is good is good for his bottom line. He is definitely a lot richer than he was, you know, going into the Trump presidency. Now what about the influence? Because you would expect, okay, maybe he maybe he mortgaged all his influence for business success. But I don't think that's true at all. And and I think actually, you know, maybe it was just an accident that that teal kind of struck out during the Trump transition or maybe it was strategic. But either way, he leaves um this he he ends these 4 years without being tied that closely to Donald Trump. And that, in in the end, is actually pretty valuable because he comes off, number one, as a tried-and-true ideologue. He is a believer. If you want to find a a rich guy who really believes in the principles of Trumpism, look no further further than Peter Thiel. Uh, Some of these other donors, you know, the Kochs, they backed away from Trump, not Thiel. He stays true, but because he was kind of cast out early, he doesn't take any of the blame. And now we're seeing him emerge as this really important kind of uh, patron to this Trump movement, and and now the Trump movement, or, or whatever you want to call it, sometimes people call it the Patriot Party or something. This it's this kind of rump of the Republican Party that's embracing, you know, this hard right populist nationalism. You know, it, it is not a big part of the electorate, and they and it's I think it's. Pretty unlikely that that a Trump style candidate is going to win the presidency, but it may be enough to win some Republican primaries, and it may even be enough to win some Senate races. And Teal is playing big this cycle in the Senate, which I think is telling. You know, he's already on the hook for more than twenty million um, dollars between two Senate races and a handful of other things. Where and that's way more than he's ever spent. So I think he's not acting like somebody who's who's seen his influence diminish. Nobody in the Republican Party is treating him that way. And I think you have to look at it like you know he he. He he played the Trump administration well, you know, love him or hate him, the guy is an amazing chess player. And by the
1: way, Max, we had a good audience question. Um it seems Trump became even too much for Peter Thiel by the end of his presidency. Do you think Thiel would support Trump again in 2024 or is he done?
0: Uh I think so 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 Thiel never never embraced Trump during the uh 2020 election. And and as you said, there was a sense that maybe uh, uh maybe trump had done something to to get under his skin i think too much is not quite the way i would put it i think it's it has more to do with perceived competence you know trump was kind of floundering i think if teal had any problem with trump it wasn't that trump was too out there it was that trump was not disciplined and and was was ineffective um teal has has made some comments um you know uh they haven't really been noticed and i think he's been pretty strategic about it but you know he gave an interview with this Swiss media outlet in 2000 where he, uh, sorry, 2020, kind of just before the election, where he not only said he still supported Trump, he said he agreed with Trump on COVID. You know, he, he basically proclaimed himself still a Trumpist. And when you look at who, what his kind of senior staff, the people who, who kind of have worked for, with him for a number of years, and also these kind of candidates who are taking his money, they're all signaling that, you know, they would be open to a Trump candidacy in 2024. Although I think that Teal and many of the other folks in this movement would much prefer if it weren 't Trump, but the thing is it 's like the Trump voters are are the people they 're catering to so so I think it 's still up in the air. I think if Trump runs, yes, Peter Thiel will support him um, certainly covertly and and probably overtly
1: well it 's certainly looking like we will we will see that scenario unfold. Uh, Max, I, I'm going to ask you a question that I sometimes get uh, in relation to Jeff Bezos. I always find it annoying, and yet I'm going to ask you the question, which is kind of what? Where do you net out on what motivates Peter Thiel? Is it is a real ideological conviction? Is it financial return? Is it the accumulation of power? You know what what is driving him right now?
0: Well, I think I think it's it's it, it, there's not a single answer, and I think it's it's a combination of. Um, of financial returns. But of course, for Teal, those financial returns are tied to technology as he sees it. So, so it's this kind of desire to grow these tech companies uh, and in doing so to grow his net worth um, as quickly as possible. But of course, there's also this ideological ambition. And I, I think those two things are, are, are basically inseparable. Well, when I was working on this um, you know, project. I read uh, Coke Land, which is uh, Christopher Leonard's uh, portrait of Coke Industries, and I think there's a really good parallel between kind of the Peter Thiel world and the Cokes, because you know the Cokes had this kind of business, these kind of industrial companies, and they had this political project, and the industrial companies are generating money, which is feeding the, the political project, which is then. Hopefully, from their point of view, you know, changing the rules and making the the companies do better, and it's this kind of virtual virtuous, or you know, if you're a critic, a vicious cycle of of. Of money and ideology, and I think it 's kind of the same thing with Peter Thiel. The difference is instead of kind of old line industrial you know natural gas and stuff we 're talking about this kind of post industrial economy and instead of the mainstream republican party the the republican party of of reagan and and george w bush we 're talking about the Republican Party of donald trump and the and the kind of trumpist movement so I, I think it 's both, and I think he 's somebody for whom it 's very, very hard to separate I- ideology from the kind of business, from the money uh, that, that comes at the end of business.
1: Well, Max, unfortunately, we only have a few minutes left. Um, so I want to go into a lightning round here. OK, so we need we need quick answers. I want to there's there's no conversation about Peter Thiel that's complete without talking about some of his more unusual bets. So we're going into a, what I want to call a good bet or bad bet uh, speed round here um, you talk about Peter's freak flag stage where he's investing in some really weird things. Um, he's got some longevity startups. Uh, does, does Peter Thiel want to live forever? Is that a good bet or a bad bet?
0: Uh, I think he uh, is, is definitely interested in extending his lifespan. I don't think there's been a whole lot of progress there, but it's been um, you know kind of amazing branding for Peter Thiel.
1: Right. Um, psychedelics to treat mental illness. I don't know if you heard about this one, but a magic mushroom Company that he's recently invested in—good, bet or bad, bet.
0: I mean, I think, uh, yeah, it seems like a good bet. I don't know. I mean, I think it totally fits in the in the kind of um, Peter Thiel. Let's let's bend the rules. Let's find the sort of regulatory areas where regulation is wrong and try to change them. There's, of course, a lot of research. You know, I've read some of this. Uh, I read Michael Pollan's "Change Your Mind." It seems like there are definitely applications. So it it seems like it makes sense, and it it feels like a. Frankly, a perfect venue for Peter Thiel. It's, it's a perfect combination of taboo with, uh, with money. And he's super into drugs and, and drug regulation and the idea of, of kind of pushing the envelope on kind of what the FDA will allow. You know, maybe there's a world where we can experiment on this in a seastead, which is another one of his, you know, crazy ideas. Right,
1: right. Okay. Uh, I didn't have that on my list, but you could answer that one. But I was going to ask good, better, bad, bit, New Zealand.
0: Um, I think, uh, New Zealand is a lovely country. Um, I don't think it's really worked out for him, uh, yet. He has spent very little time there. Um, and, and I think as I argue in the book, um, you know, I think that the New Zealand acquiring New Zealand citizenship was partly a backup plan in case the political things didn't didn't work out for uh for, for him. And and of course, Donald Trump became became president. He didn't have to spend any time in New Zealand. That said, I mean, I've looked at his property. It's uh, in New Zealand. It seems like a very nice place. And I, and I, I think there were just permits uh, put forward. They're doing some renovations. So maybe I think the jury's still out on that one. It hasn't really paid off as a as a political bet.
1: And this is an apocalyptic, uh, basically, last resort for him.
0: Well, I don't think it is, because I think we just have gone through an apocalypse, and, uh, and, and I can tell you where he was, and he wasn't in New Zealand. He was in Maui. And, you know, of course, as, a, as an apocalypse destination, Mau- Maui and New Zealand have a lot in common, but Maui's a little bit closer, and, uh, and you know, ch- it's a shorter, shorter trip on the plane. and You don't have to gas up, and, um, and uh, they, you know, it's probably a little bit easier. Uh, I, I think it was more of a regulatory arbitrage opportunity, but, of course, you know, when the world falls apart, there, it's nice to have, you know, multiple bunkers.
1: He's also placed a contrarian bet against San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Good bet or bad bet?
0: Well, I think I have to say it's a bad bet. You know, we're talking to the Commonwealth Club here. I mean, you know— I think that his bet there has always been somewhat overblown. And and you know, when he was after, you know, making this big speech about, you know, leaving Silicon Valley, Founders Fund, which is his VC firm, you know, they they're still based in in um in San Francisco to some extent. Although there's been a little bit of movement uh to Miami lately. Um I, I don't think we've really seen Anything that seriously um, threatens, you know, the preeminence of, of Silicon Valley yet. Now, of course, that could change. And when you have somebody as influential and as powerful as Peter Thiel, then then that's something that I think you need to take seriously. So, hopefully, people in San Francisco are taking seriously, but I, I, taking it seriously. Although I'm not sure I would be panicking quite yet.
1: Well, one more in this uh, in this game of Peter Thiel: good bet or bad bet? Uh, Roth IRA. This is uh, he's funneled many of his investment winnings into this personal retirement account. But we're right at the verge, perhaps, of a rewriting of some of these tax laws. So good bet or bad bet?
0: I'm going to say, uh, so far, phenomenal bet. I mean, he's managed to squirrel away, you know, more than five million dollars um, in this investment account that was originally designed for, you know, to not have, you know, more than a couple of thousand dollars per year into it. As you say, there's a backlash, and th- and that backlash could result in in tax bills for Peter Thiel. That said, um, two two points that I think are worth considering. One is this strategy that he's adopted has become very popular. So, uh, Peter Thiel, as we've talked about, is can be a vindictive billionaire who has a lot of influence at his disposal and a ton of money. Um, he's not going to be the only opponent of this. There are going to be a lot of rich people who are really upset about this. So I think it's going to be hard to push through. Um, and even if it is pushed through and Teal has to pay a tax bill, you know, in the billions of dollars, I think, you know, it's not the worst thing that, you know, I mean, it's it's as, as my accountant sometimes says, you know, you've had a good year. So it's, uh, he. you know, I think he'll, I think he'll live.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think he will be okay. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today's program. I want to thank the Commonwealth Club for hosting it. Of course, I want to encourage everyone to purchase Max's tremendous book, The Contrarian, Peter Thiel, and Silicon Valley's Pursuit of Power. You can buy it wherever books are sold.
0: Max, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brad, and thanks, everybody, for watching. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California.